Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. You've heard the gravelly voice of Artie Lang for two decades now, as he's climbed the ranks from Mad TV to the movie Dirty Work to the Howard Stern Show. In the past four years, his amazing comeback has seen him launch radio shows on DirecTV, SiriusXM, and now his new subscription-based podcast from his home in Hoboken. His 2016 will start with Artie hosting the Nasty Show Comedy Special January 8th on Showtime and appearing in the Mad TV 20th Anniversary Special January 12th on The CW. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. What do you podcast out of? My kitchen. <laughs> My kitchen in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I've been late 11 times. Uh, is, it, is it tough to get guests to come out to Hoboken? No, they, a lot of people, a lot of comics are so desperate for plugs. I do it in the afternoon for like 1 to 3. Comics get up around noon, and they, they come by. Oh, wow. It's harder to get me to get to the. It's harder to get me to leave my bedroom than them to come here. <laughs> which is which is why I have you on the phone this afternoon. Right, I catch traffic around my uh, bathroom sometimes, so I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a blast. So last things first, Artie, you're hosting the Nasty Show on Showtime. When was the last time you were too nasty, even for your own sake? My own Where you were like, uh, oh no, that's too nasty. Oh uh, well, uh, it's uh, probably uh, when I uh, uh, was at my friend's house, um, uh, who I didn't. I, my friend and uh, my friend's brother married a black girl. I don't realize it. And uh, I was watching a Nick game that I had a bet on, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the Knicks missed a shot, and uh, I said some stuff I probably shouldn't know. <laughs> and now you no longer own the Clippers. <laughs> no, I wasn't really racist stuff, but it was more like uh, you know yeah. stuff that could be open, uh, open interpretation stuff. Okay. Do yeah. You, what yeah. do you remember about the first time you did the nasty show in Montreal? Oh God! Well, I, it was a long time ago. I, remember, I was it was seventeen years ago. Oh wow! So okay. I, yeah, I was doing cocaine in an Expos game. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah, the Montreal uh, Expos used to be a baseball team. Kids. Right. They went away, and I stopped doing coke eventually. Sometime in the late 90s but I, I uh, well you know I just remembered uh, how great the audiences are because they always uh, you know uh, they yearn to hear adult comedy mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of comedy is very safe nowadays and the nasty show by uh, you know by definition is supposed to be adult uh, oriented comedy and I think they like going out and uh, you know hearing guys curse be a little dangerous yeah. it doesn't happen as much anymore so uh <laughs> The the atmosphere is usually kind of electric because the fans are way into, you know, it's kind of a pathetic take on the world now. But they're they're like, wow, we're gonna act like grown ups and <laughs> hear a person curse and maybe someone will smoke a cigarette or something. Yeah, Montreal's Crazy just stuff. yeah, Montreal's just for laughs likes to have a lot of branded theme shows. Do do you think that helps whether it's the nasty show or the ethnic show or or any kind of branding of a theme show to to let the audience know what they're in for? Well, I, I mean, look, it's the, the Montreal Comedy Festival uh, did it. was one of the first people to do it, so I can't give them crap, but it's, you know, <laughs> a, a lot of comedy, a lot of comedy is basically a new way to just 
repackage and spit out stand-up comedy. Right. Um, you know, a lot of stuff is, most stuff is just jokes. Like Bill Maher's got that whole section at the end of his show, the new rules, you know. <laughs> they're, 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 they're just jokes. Right. You know, that he, he goes, new rule, and then he tells a joke. Um, so a lot of this is, you know, ethnic show. Okay, you'll see, it's like, you're going to see guys who are probably from different ethnicities do stand-up, which right. is, you know, every basically any club in the country has that every night. Uh, it's, uh, it's to me, you know, nothing that it doesn't make it that special. Uh, but it's just a, a way of telling you, look, we're at least trying right. to make it a unique experience. And the, the Montreal gets the best comics, you know, young and old in the world. So, uh, you, uh, you're interested in almost every show, but you know, look, I will say this about the nasty show. It is something where people who might be offended by that kind of humor know not to go. Mm -hmm. And I like that those people get weeded out. I do, because uh, that's the worst, is people who aren't prepared to see what they're about to see. When you were first starting out in comedy, did you consider yourself a nasty comic? No. No, I've never considered myself any uh, any type of comedian. I... People are saying, are you political? Are you mm-hmm. like, no, I, 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 it's so hard to write jokes with no boundaries. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Why give yourself limits? I, I never consider myself a specific type of comedian. I'm the kind of comedian who tries to say funny stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, when you, what, what first inspired you to get on stage when you were a kid? Oh, well, uh, I, I was 19 years old. The first time I tried stand up, I, I didn't go to college. I had to go to summer school to graduate high school and I my family was on welfare at the time because my old man fell off a roof working and was a quadriplegic and we had no insurance and I uh, the only shot I had at making more money than I would have made taking a fireman exam or something or working construction was the comedy you know everybody in my school said you're funny and I like being funny Uh, I was a good baseball player but uh, I wasn't going to play shortstop for the Yankees, that's for sure. So I said, you know, from a very early age, I said, I should, I'm going to try to do stand-up the first chance I get. I probably started thinking like that when I was 13, and uh, maybe 12 even. And I, I didn't get the guts till I was 19 years old. I went in the city and uh, went to the old improv on 9th and 44th. Okay, and, uh, it was still and, there. Uh, yeah, I went up and I did five minutes at 1 a.m. And I uh, tell you what. I uh, I bombed, but I loved it. I said I can. I know I can get better at this, and uh, eventually I did because I had nothing else to do. A lack of anything else to do that was that interesting, and I've. It's led to an incredibly fascinating life. You know, it's fun. Yeah. Was the was the improv offering open spots that at late night at that time, or, or well, did you have to go through they, an audition they, process? What they did what they called a lottery. Okay. Um, Anybody could show up, and what they did was they had numbers. Uh, they had uh, the numbers one to ten in a hat, uh, and uh, surrounded by two hundred blank pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. So you you went into the hat. The, the people who showed up, uh, you know, uh, off the street, they you didn't need any credentials, just showing up. You went into the hat, and if you picked one of the uh, pieces of paper that had a number on it, that was your point in the lineup. Okay. But what they did was they had a professional comic as the MC and then they had a professional comic up first and then they threw an open micer and obviously they don't want to have ten people bomb in a row. <laughs> right. So uh <laughs> the first uh slot for an open micer, if you got number one, that was your slot. I picked number ten. The first time I went I got a number. Okay. And it was number ten, which meant I went, I went on about one thirty AM on a Sunday night, July the twelfth, nineteen eighty seven. 
Uh, Remember the date. date. I'll never forget that, yeah, because I saw the, the dead and Bob Dylan at Giant Stadium beforehand. Oh, wow. Uh, which, which I had heard on the Howard Stern show. I heard it plugged. I went in. I was living in North Jersey, mm-hmm. and I, I bought mushrooms off a guy. <laughs> I took mushrooms, and halfway through the dead's last set, I... Uh, uh, the song Hell in a Bucket was playing. I'll never forget that. I left and I said, fuck it, I'm going to go. And I was coming down from the mushrooms <laughs> drinking a screwdriver when I did stand up for the first time. Uh, is but, that why uh, you bombed? Do you no, think, or is I it just because I, it was your first I, time? Yeah. I would love to make that excuse. I appreciate you giving me that out, but I, I bombed because I, uh, at the time, I sucked at stand up comedy. <laughs> how, so, how long, after, but, uh, how long after July 12th of 87 did it take to get up on stage the second time? One week later, I went on stage. It was it was '87, so it was a comedy boom. And yeah, there were sports bars and stuff in Jersey that would have comedy nights. So I didn't go up at a club, but I went at one of those places that had a comedy night in, in Jersey. And I went on stage. I took the mic out of the stand, and the wire fell out of the bottom of the mic. I was so nervous. <laughs> I, I took me. It felt like an hour to put the wire back. I got it back in. I mumbled and bombed for five minutes, and I'll never forget. Uh, what the MC said. He said, that guy's a clap for art. He's not funny, but he has cancer. That is a good cover. Uh, that is a good Yeah, cover. that was the worst I ever bombed. I didn't go on stage again until mm-hmm. I was 22. Oh, three wow. Three years later. Okay. Three years later, I, I, uh, I, my father died and uh, well, a couple of years later. I said, uh, you know what? As a tribute to my old man, I'll try it again. I went to the bitter end and Bleecker Street in Manhattan. They were having a contest a radio station sponsored and I came in sixth out of ten people. And when I drove home that night, I said, there's four people in the world shittier at this than I am, so I'm going to keep doing it. And then I was doing it every night. I went out of the city almost every night. And about a year later, I was, I had 15 minutes, and I was, I was a comedian. That's, that's a good way to look at uh, contests. It's not whether you finished first. It's that you didn't finish last. <laughs> Right, and I'm not a half full uh, guy and a guy with the glass. I, that was uh, I had to look positive about it there. Also, I never would have went back. I'm the kind of guy who looks at the glass as being half full, but what's in it tastes like shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how you get two best-selling books out of it. <laughs> exactly. That's right. There you go. It's uh, it's been a life that led to two best-selling books before the age of fifty. <laughs> that's 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 not bad. That's not, that's not bad. It, and yeah. also uh, also coming right up around the bend is. Uh, the 20th anniversary of Mad TV, which you participated yeah. in? Well, I'll tell you what, they were nice enough to invite me out to LA to do it, and they were going to play uh, the, the, the pop, most popular sketch I did there. This mm-hmm. thing called That's My White Mom, and they were going to have me introduce it, but uh, I had a good career thing happen. In the meantime, I booked an HBO pilot that Judd Apatow produced and directed, and I was the second lead of it, so I had to shoot the... I took a full week to shoot the pilot in okay. New York City... That- that's so I can't, uh, so-called crash. That's Pete the Pete Holmes. Holmes pilot, yeah. Yeah, I'm the second lead of the pilot. Oh, wow, I play that's myself. great. I play myself. The pilot is called Artie Lang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, right, right, because the, the, the conceit of that show is that Pete crashes with a different comedian each episode. Right, yeah, a comedian who he looks up to is more famous than him sort of thing. And, uh-huh. uh, I meet you at the club, and Apatow and Red Doe, both of my books and mm-hmm. he said you know he let me improv all things he said just tell stories from your life and it, it came out amazing for my Judd texted me just the other night and said it, it came out great uh so i can't wait to to see that but um working with Apatow was so uh, amazing yeah. and uh, it was a good chunk of change so god bless hbo but i could not go it was the, one of the days of shooting was okay the mad tv things so i had to cancel but what they let me do is i taped something 
in Manhattan. Okay. Uh, and I sent it, and I believe they're going to use it, and uh, they'll uh, let that come before my sketch, White Bomber. So well, I'm proud, very proud to be a part of that show. Yeah, the press release I got mentioned you as one of the participants, so I think you made the yes. cut. I think you made the cut. Yeah. <laughs> When is that airing? The, the uh, that's in January. That's also in January. Uh, it's a, it, uh, but it's on the. Yeah. It's on the. It's airing on the CW, not on Fox. Right. They had a deal with the CW. I uh, being in the uh, original cast of that is something I'm very proud of. So I'm yeah. glad to, to be a part of it. Was Was that something when you were first dreaming about comedy as a 12, 13 year old that you were like, oh, I want to be on a, a sketch TV show like Saturday Night Live? I wanted to be uh, every the, type of. What was the dream? Uh, well, I wanted to be. The dream was everything. Mm-hmm. The, the dream was in 1982 from the same building. Letterman and Howard Stern started on radio and TV, and I became obsessed with both shows. So, uh, and I was obsessed with John Belushi and Bill Murray. So I, I wanted to do sketches. I wanted to be on a sitcom like uh, Jackie Gleason or The Odd Couple. I wanted to be on the radio like Howard. I wanted to uh, host a show. I wanted to, you know, write books. I wanted to do everything. Sketch mm-hmm. comedy. It's amazing how stuff worked out for me. I, at the age of 27, I got the break with Mad, and I wanted the sketch comedy to lead to movies, which it did. It got me dirty work with Norm, and that led to the Stern Show. Uh, which, you know, Howard, you know, to my generation, to me, is like our Johnny Carson. To get on that gig was, it was, it was unbelievable. It, it, it made me a, I went from a working actor uh, to, a, to a celebrity. Yeah. That's what the Stern Show did for me. You become a bit of a rock star there. I sold out Carnegie Hall in, in two hours. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, a dream. Yeah. So, every, I've touched on every part of comedy that I wanted to do. I've, I, I don't look it, but I'm a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> how, now, how do you how do you get att- how do you get Howard's attention that first time to get on the air the first time? Well, what happened is so funny. Everything can be uh, traced directly back to Mad TV. I, mm-hmm. I did Mad for two years, and it was a turbulent time. I had uh, problems with uh, cocaine and stuff, and I got arrested and spent time in L.A. County Jail until I left the show. But I did just enough episodes to where Norm Macdonald and the casting director for uh, the MGM film. Uh, dirty work saw me do a couple of sketches and I caught Norm's eye and the casting director's eye and they brought me up to each other and they said I, we were both thinking of him uh, he'd be perfect for what was not a small part this is the second lead of a buddy comedy yeah. which is what dirty work is so uh, I, they called me in and uh, I uh, I was available because I got thrown off the show I, I met Norm on the screen test for dirty work okay. in Santa Monica and uh I killed. I had a great audition. And uh, the next morning I got a call in my hotel room and I was I got the part. And next thing I know, I'm in Toronto shooting a buddy comedy with Norm MacDonald. Mm-hmm. Worked, I worked every day on the film. We were there for two months. So when you do that, you go away like to camp with somebody. You either hate them or love them. Me and Norm became big, big uh, close friends. And uh, he knew I loved Howard. So when he went into Howard to promote Dirty Work, he brought me. Oh, and right. I, I told crazy stories that I had and Howard loved them. And uh, then uh, I went in, I did two years on a sitcom with Norm, and both years we went into Howard to promote each year. And I always killed with these crazy, sort of nutty party stories I had. And Howard always, you know, said, Now you're a friend of the show, come back anytime. And that's how he knew me. And then, you know, life is all about timing. When Jackie left the show, the Norm show got canceled. I was free from that contract. And Howard said, on the air, look, we're going to have on-air auditions, uh, comedians uh, of all types. You can come in, and hopefully, if uh, you're good enough, we'll put you in the chair. And on air, we'll, we'll audition people. And because he knew me from coming in with Norm, well, I was able had, to 
yeah, that's how we knew. You had, you had me come in. in. You know, it's right. it, it's amazing hearing you retell this story. That stand-up comedy can be such a, a lonely solo proposition. Not just being on stage, but also just the life of a stand-up comedian. Right. And yet, right. and yet, time and time again, you hear stories like yours of the power of one stand-up helping another. Yes. Yeah. Well, Norm. Norm is again. Uh, that's a good point, actually. Uh, yeah. That's actually so people. Uh, aren't that perceptive with it. You're right. It's, it is a very lonely existence because, you know, comics, a lot of comics are assholes. They, 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 they get very defensive and, uh, and it, it, they, they manifest, manifest itself in the shittiest of ways. They seem unfriendly, even if they're not, because they're so insecure. And uh, a lot of times you just got to let your guard down. And you realize, you know, you're the same exact person. You wanted to do the same thing. You have the same fears and sort of loves and everything. Yeah. And, uh, Norm's older than me, but we had the same, we were fans of the same thing and had the same vices in a way. And yeah, we became friendly and Norm was so good to me. He was, uh, you know, everything I got after Mad TV, you could attest as, a, as to, it's because of Norm. But uh, that's exactly what happened, yeah. When's the last time you and Norm hung out? Well, we, you know, we live on opposite coasts, yeah. but uh, we talk on the phone quite a bit okay. um, here and there. Uh, I was with him every day for four years. I, I miss him, but, uh, you know, the Stern Show obviously brought me back east, and he stayed out there, and uh, whenever we get a chance, we see each other. I had dinner with him in L.A. a little under a year ago, and I was out there uh, doing Conan. But, uh, you know, hopefully, as a matter of fact, I just found out that I... I, I just booked a cartoon. I got offered a cartoon where me and Norm, uh, as voiceovers, have a scene together. That's going to be fun. Who, who is that for? It's a, it's a massive project. There's no title. Okay. But people like Susan Sarandon, uh, like Marvel, like major movie stars, are doing voices. Is it a movie uh, thing or a or a TV a or TV. streaming network? Okay. A TV. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, as you were as you were talking, I was remembering. Uh, one of the more, most recent times I saw you was we were both on the set of the Jim Gaffigan show, which was another. Oh, okay. I was uh, you. You had a speaking part. You were a legit. You were on the call sheet. I was just. A, <laughs> I was just a featured extra. But, oh, okay. But right. but that was a show. That's another example where Jim Gaffigan populated his entire first first season with comedians. Yeah, you know. Again, it's. Uh... You know, I you know I've known Jimmy Gaffigan over on and off over 20 years. That whole generation, all of us who came up in the early to mid 90s, you know, there's definitely a little bit of a bond there. I love so many of those guys. Uh, I think that's a combination of Jim wanting us to be there, and of course, if you get us all together, you get all of our twitters together. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the publicity department going. Hey, it's it's both uh, the best of both worlds, but. Um, that was fun to do because it was just great to hang out with all those people that you never see. That was a great right. group of people, Colin and Attell and Voss and Bonnie. And, uh, you know, uh, it was it was a, a bunch of fun. And uh, Jim Jim's a good actor. He's doing well there. I'm happy for him. Yeah, well, I I felt like it added a, it added a, a much-needed dose of realism for a show about comedians to have actual comedians instead of just actors portraying comedians. Right. But then yeah. also... Adam, uh, yeah. But then also, right, Adam Goldberg, I think, was the only one. Yeah, he plays, he's a great actor, but he's playing a comic. You're right, it is different. But, every, but everybody yeah. else, like, but every episode he had all of these comedians that, he's, that Jim has known over the years, like, just filling in all the different spots. 
And it, uh, yeah, I think that's a great idea, too. Michael Ian Black is a guy, again, another guy I've known a long time, a real talented guy who is a sketch guy, but I've seen him do stand-up, too. He can also do stand-up. He can do anything. So, And he's a great actor, so he's perfect for that role he's playing. He can do characters. And, uh, you know, and then you populate it with, with just people who are probably straight great actors, like the, the wife is clearly a probably a, a theater actress who's great at what she does, and, uh, but but uh, Gaffigan's a really good actor himself. I enjoy the show. Now the uh, the last time I sat down with you for this amount of time was uh, at the Olive Tree uh, four years ago. You agreed to sit down with me to shoot a little thing. And, no uh, kidding. Yeah, and and <laughs> you know it's it's been it's been quite a four years for you since then. <laughs> uh, you know that was when you were you were first venturing back back into the club scene was. Was then, right. Was then, and you know, you had a comeback with uh, Directv and Sirius, and then that went away. And now you're doing your own podcast out of out of your kitchen. What? <laughs> what? Tell tell me about that thought process for you when you when you realized that the uh, Directv and Sirius wasn't working out. What? Well, DirecTV, I, I, I had a three-year contract there, and uh, by the end of three years, I had kind of made it a little obvious I didn't want to stay there because I didn't love – it was fun and a great way to come back, but I hated doing regular radio. I had to hit eight-minute and ten-minute spots and do mm-hmm. commercials, and, and I couldn't curse. and I just felt a little handcuffed, and uh, – I, uh, I, my stand-up special, I just sold my, my stand-up special and I was working hard on the road with that. And I, I kind of told, you know, I met with other people secretly. One was serious. I think they probably found out about it. Hmm. And uh, they beat me to the punch and just a few months before I was going to leave, they, they let me go, which was, which was fine. It was mm-hmm. the greatest three years to come back into the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, the, the logical thing at that point was maybe to try podcasting. And uh, they they paid me for the whole three months, so I couldn't work anywhere else. And that gave me a chance to make my stand-up special as good as I possibly could. Okay. I shot that. Uh, I was proud of it. And, uh, you know, the podcast turned into a business. And uh, But there's, there's, uh, there's some stuff that uh, I got brewing in the new year. I'll, I'll probably make some sort of announcement. Okay. Uh, in the new year. You don't want to make it here on, my, on the show? No, I can't. But based on the based on the radio, my radio situation, there's going to be something I'll 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 be able to announce okay. probably in January. Well, I I I'm I'm curious to know how you decided to do both to do an independent podcast out of your home, but then also to not be part of like a podcast network and and also to ha- and then also on top of that to have a paid subscription model. Well, because I, before I started, I talked to a bunch of people, and they said, well, obviously, you know, not a lot of people pay for a podcast, but he, they said, this one guy said to me, I was just about to do the advertising thing, but this one guy said to me, he goes, you're one of the few guys who might be able to get people to pay because you had eight and a half years on the Stern Show, which means you have a following that's pretty hardcore, mm-hmm. that, and maybe they do it. And they said, you know, uh, 10 bucks a month. But I said, I don't know, 10 might be a little bit. I said, I'm going to try seven. I landed at seven bucks a month. So uh, I started charging seven bucks a month, and the numbers I do, if you if you're gonna you know apply it to uh, advertising mm-hmm. podcast for free, it would be a complete utter failure. But I I have about 
9,000 people who signed up. Oh, hi. And that's, you know, uh, nobody for an advertising thing, but I, it's 63 grand a month. It cost me a hundred and it cost me 150 grand a year in overhead. Okay. So I'm making about 600 grand a year from the, <laughs> from the podcast. And, and I do it in my kitchen. And yeah. It's a great commute. And, it's a great commute. Yeah, so I and, I and I make about I make about six six to seven hundred a year in stand up. So it's it's I've landed into this insanely casual life where <laughs> you know I, I again I'm no brilliant business guy, but right. the guy said again nine thousand people in the in the, in the advertising world they go oh my god that's terrible, but with me it's it's insane money. <laughs> You know, and uh, there's not many people who get anybody to pay a dime for it. It's a quarter a day. But these Stern fans are so hardcore, they enough paid for it, and it's growing. I did zero advertising. So I just signed with UTA, and they can't believe the situation. And they're like, (laughs) can we we take our digital department and and, and, in the new year just try to blow it out? Right. And I said, yeah. They claim getting to 20,000 people within six months is not so far-fetched. And, uh, you know, based on that, other people hear that, and so I've gotten offers from other areas, and that's that's what the announcement will be okay. uh, based on. And how, uh, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's nutty. It's a nutty, it's an interesting question, but they <laughs> said, look, if you start with the advertising, you can't go back. So you're going to have to launch it with the pay thing. And I, I rolled the dice with that and I've never been more comfortable in a lifestyle in my life. How much, so how much does that add to your just daily serenity? No, it's insane, man. It's, it's, it's serenity is a perfect word. It is like, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got, I got December 26th and 27th. I, I play a theater in Boston and I'm at Foxwoods Fox theater on the 26th. And the 27th, I'm at the Wilbur in Boston. So it's a couple of gigs over the holidays, and it's it's great money, one show, and uh, you know it, it's it's such an incredible lifestyle. That's why these other entities who came to me about other offers, I'm coming from a good place because I told UTA, I said, guys, they're gonna have to bring it to get me out of this lifestyle right now. So <laughs> we will we'll see what happens. Somebody might have brought it. We'll are, the, see what happens. are those holiday shows sold out already, or there's still tickets? Uh, I I don't know. Okay. But, uh, you know what? They tell me where they are, so probably not. Okay. But uh, close, I would assume. Then I'll make sure to get this up before then. Oh, please. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, yeah. December 26th, I'm at the Fox <laughs> Theater in Foxwoods. And the 27th, Wilbur Theater in Boston. All right. Awesome. Uh, I'm at the, the Comedy Cellar. Midnight, I'm the Midnight Comic New Year's Eve at the Comedy Cellar. Um, I go on at midnight, so uh, that's a fun spot. Yeah, I was tell I was telling uh, Artie Fuqua introduced me to a, one of his many young lady friends uh, a few weeks ago, <laughs> and uh, absolutely, and we got we got to talking, and I was she was asking me about happiness, and I told her that happiness is like an orgasm. It's a very it's, <laughs> It's like a very, it's a very, it's a very, like the state of being happy is a very fleeting thing. It's like winning the World Series or the Super Bowl. It's, there's a, there's a lot of elation and excitement and that might last through the night and through the next day. But then after that, it's just, now what? Yeah. What you really want, what you really want is, is kind of serenity or contentment where you're just at peace with everything. Yeah. You want something, you don't, you don't want to blow your load. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, yeah, I've, I've, it's been, happiness has been something that 
has eluded me in, uh, on paper for a long time. Kids I went to high school with, they're like, well, why are you not happy? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, I'm getting older. I'm 48. And, uh, the lifestyle I have right now is the closest I've been to something you call serenity, that's for sure. Well, that's great to hear. What's the what's the last uh, great advice you've gotten to help you maintain that sort of peacefulness? Oh God, some sort of some sort of spirituality. Yeah. I'm not saying uh, religion, and I'm not saying where, but something. <laughs> Believing yeah. in something that's be- that's greater than us, uh-huh. uh, no matter what it is. Uh, uh, truly having some sort of spiritual. Uh, moment where you, you go you can kind of give yourself over to that that's that to me is the is the key and yeah. I've, I've had as close to that as i've i've had in my life in the last couple of years that's, you know, so that's great to hear yeah thanks it's uh it's an all right feeling <laughs> I when 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 i when i bring that up with people and they they have an issue with religion i just tell them to uh use the force Exactly. A force is fine. Whatever yeah. it is. Whatever 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 floats your boat. Believe in Yoda. Yes. If you don't believe in God, believe in Yoda. What that's there's worse there's worse to believe. <laughs> now if a if a young uh whippersnapper or or even an old uh pers- older person who hasn't done comedy comes up to you after a show, uh and you know, after getting a signature or asking you for a photo, they ask you for advice on getting into the game. What's the first thing you tell them? I tell them, make sure you, you you truly have a passion for it. Make sure it's like, if you really want to do it, make sure it's not half-ass because it, it won't work. It won't work if it is. It won't work as a lark, as a hobby, as I'm kind of into this. It's got to be like, I am willing to drop everything uh, to do a, a spot of stand-up. Mm. And there's nothing else in my life that would make me uh, other than a you know a tragedy in your family or something but there's nothing else uh, including a girlfriend a job whatever that would make me uh, choose that over getting a set somewhere stand up a chance to get on stage yeah. uh, no matter how small the game uh, if you, you think that's it then, then then go to the next step which is trying to get on stage as often as possible you know well, Artie Lang, I'm, 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 I'm glad to hear that you still have a passion for it. And uh, I'm, I'm so happy you, uh, you took some time to chat with me. Well, buddy, we'll see what happens. Hopefully it'll last. We'll be, we'll be it's up and down, but I appreciate the time, brother. Well, I look forward to seeing what you got in 2016. Thank you, my man. Thanks, Artie. Be well. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brzezell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.